0: Hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and thanks for joining us on today's program. I'm talking to a really interesting guy, Rainer Zittelmann. He's an author from Germany. We were talking to him from Berlin. And the uh, name of the book is The Rich in Public Opinion. He's gone and done a worldwide survey of all different sorts of people around the world and what they think of rich people and his focus particularly on the younger groups is fascinating. Uh, The kind of revelations he's uh, looking at is the fact that in America young people are becoming goddamn lefties and in Italy the young Italians really actually like rich people it's a fascinating look at the changing nature of humanity and the view on rich people that's coming up our first interview then we talked to Pamela Bishop from Bloom's the chemist this is uh, you know, she's the chief marketing officer and she talks about What's like being on the front line fighting the coronavirus in a really important uh, business sector called pharmacy or the chemist? And finally, we talked to Andrew Crawley from Seguro Risk Management. And this guy talks about resuscitating, if possible, zombie companies. And he reckons there's a whole lot out there because the government has been keeping them on life support. That's the show for tonight. And today, let's uh, go and talk to Rain Zittelmann. He's a German historian, author, management consultant, and sociologist. And he has a new book out called The Rich in Public Opinion. Welcome to the program,
1: Rainer. Hello. Nice to to be again with you.
0: Yes, same here. Now, because you're a a very respectable man, um, Rainer, you've got a very nice title, The Rich in Public Opinion. But if I was writing this book, I would have had something like Why the man in the street hate the rich? Now, that that is a more provocative title, but would it be a correct title? After all your research, does the average man in the street hate the rich?
1: First of all, I agree this title would be much better for selling the book, but it wouldn't (laughs) be correct because there are people who hate the rich and there are people with uh, stereotypes and prejudice against rich people, but these are not all people. And uh, it's uh, different from country to country. And what we did, uh, we commissioned uh, a poll uh, in four countries in the United States, UK, France, and Germany. And uh, we asked the same questions in all these countries to find out what people really think about the rich, the wealthy, and there were huge differences between each country, uh, huge differences in the age groups, and so on. I think we will talk about it yeah. in the next half hour. Okay,
0: so l- let me get this straight then. What country seemed to have a more positive view on the rich?
1: It was UK and United States. um, And then on the other end, the the most envious country is uh, France. After France, uh, Germany, uh, we calculated something that I call the social envy coefficient. What does it mean? We have different groups in every society. One group we call the envious and the other group the non-envious and then the middle between both groups are the uh, ambivalent. And then we calculated what is the ratio between two groups, between the envious and the non-envious. And this is then the social envy coefficient to make it maybe a little bit easier. The higher the number is, the more envious are the people in a country, and in France it was 1.21, in uh, Germany it was 0.97, and then in United States it was 0.42, and in UK 0.37. But these are only the results for the uh, population in uh, general, for the po- population as mm-hmm. a whole. But of course there were big differences, for example, in the United States with the age groups. Mm. I will give you uh, one one example. Um, people in the United States younger than 30, they are very, very negative towards rich people. And people who are older than 60 Americans, they are very positive. I will give you only an example with one question. We, we Um, confronted the interviewers with the following statement. Um, Rich people are good at earning money, but they are not usually decent people. A very negative statement about Mm. rich people. And uh, in the United States, population as a whole, 27% agreed. But from the young people under 30, 40% agreed, 40%. And then if you look at the answers of the older Americans, older than 60, only 15% agreed and 50% disagreed. So so it was with all the other questions. And what we did right now, this is not in the book, but uh, there will be... um, Uh, uh, Italian edition of the book Mm. next year. And now we ask the same questions in Italy. And and this I can uh, tell you a very interesting example. There it was, for example, the other way around. Uh, Young people were very, very positive toward rich people and older people in Italy were very, very negative. So you see uh, on the one hand you have a result for the population as a whole but there are uh, huge differences, especially with age groups and, of course, with, uh, with income groups and so on.
0: What do you think is driving the attitude towards the rich in the, in the different age groups and in the different countries?
1: Um, there, you know, if, if you are economically or financially not so successful, as someone else you have different ways to react there are some people they see someone who is richer than than he then for him maybe it is a motivation there were a lot of people who said uh, rich people uh, who made it due to their own efforts they are role models uh, for us and then they can motivate me but there's another kind of reaction uh, this group, I, I spoke about the group of the envious, and these are people. Uh, their uh, most important ambition is not to improve their own situation, but uh, they feel good if uh, the situation for the rich people becomes worse. I, I give you some example that it is maybe a little bit more concrete. Um, we had one question. We asked the people. Um, Uh, We confronted them with the following statement, I would favor drastically, um, no, uh, sorry, Uh, the question was, I think it would be fair to increase taxes substantially for millionaires, even if I would not benefit from it personally. So, uh, that means... uh, these social envious are not primarily motivated uh, by the desire to improve their own situation to close the gap between themselves and the rich. They are far more concerned with making life worse for the rich or take something uh, away, even if it does not create any personal benefit. I give you another example. We had the statement. Um, I would favor drastically reducing manager salaries and redistributing the money more evenly among their employees, even if that would mean that the employees would get only a few dollars uh, per month. So, it is the same principle, you're uh, drastically reducing CEO compensation, uh, manager salaries, and uh, the people, the employees, they have no real advantage if they have only maybe two or three dollars more the month. Or the last uh, the, the last uh, statement, or well, a dozen of statements, but the last example that I want to give you, this was one question we called the Schadenfreude question. And this was uh, the statement, when I hear about a millionaire who made a risky business decision, and lost a lot of money because of it. I think it serves him right. And if people answered with uh, <coughs> um, agreed with all this kind of statements, mm. then we called them the envious. Yep. And if they disagreed with the statement, then we called them the non-envious. And because we raised the same questions in all three countries, it was very easy to to uh, compare it.
0: Mm. So. I was going to say, you know, in the countries where the the level of social welfare was really high, did that sort of population or that group of people have a little bit more compassion towards the rich? Um, and you know, I'm looking at, for example, the U.S. I don't think the level of social welfare is all that great in the U.S., but they seem to be more compassionate towards the rich. Did you did you consider some of the um the conflicts in these conclusions
1: um <clears throat> yes it's uh, but, but this was the american tradition that people were uh, skeptically skeptical against the state skeptically against high taxes and uh, pro-capitalism pro-entrepreneurship pro-free market these are the americans like we we knew them for for decades. Mm. The, this is a tradition in the United States. But what I want to say, it changes now because I, I mentioned that younger Americans, they have a totally different view. And this is uh, interesting that something changes. You, you, you saw it in politics uh, as well, that uh, very left-wing politicians, politicians like uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, got a lot of support, especially from uh, young Americans. Yep.
0: And, and Rainer, do you think what you're seeing then is a, a socialistic tendency for younger um, people of the world? And do you think it's linked to the, the fact that older and richer people don't seem to be worked up about issues like climate change?
1: No, it's, it's not generally true. It's only for Americans with this difference between young and uh, old people. As as I mentioned, for example, in Italy, it's exactly the other way around. Yeah. Young people are much more positive toward rich people than older people. And even in France and uh, Germany and um, UK, it, it was so that the young people were a little bit more positive toward rich uh, the 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 rich not not so much as it was in italy but they were more positive so you can't uh, uh, generalize it i see uh, that there's a um that there's a general tendency all over the world against capitalism if you compare it with the 80s when we had politicians like ronald reagan the united states maggie thatcher in uh, uk or even in china deng xiaoping people with a uh, pro pro market attitude and if you compare it with the world uh, today uh, there's a there's a change and uh, people are much more skeptical against uh, capitalism and what is uh, what, what I see as a problem, this prejudice against the rich. Some people told me, oh, okay, uh, maybe people have uh, s- narratives, negative stereotypes and prejudices that maybe are not okay. But what's the problem for rich people anyway? They have a, a great life. They can enjoy their life. They have a lot of money. They have a lot of privileges. And on the one hand, it's true. But on the other hand, please don't forget that words become deeds. Maybe I can tell you some experience from me here in Germany, where where I come from. Uh, We had here demonstrations at the uh, Labor's Day, and there were posters uh, with uh, slogans like, kill your landlord, for example. Or there were posters with a a guillotine and uh, the the writing beside the guillotine against the city of the rich. And, you know, these are very aggressive slogans against rich people. And if you look at the Internet, you can buy a lot of T-shirts that should be funny, like eat the rich or even kill the rich and so on. And I give you a thought experiment. If you think for a moment, uh, there would be similar slogans against, for example, black people, like kill black people or uh, kill... Uh, or". Um, or or kill Jewish people or or kill Muslims. Everyone would be outraged uh, rightlessly. This is not uh, accepted in any way uh, to speak so negative about uh, minorities. And this is one of my arguments that rich people are the only minority words allowed to speak very, very negative and aggressive against them uh, without so and is accepted in in uh, society mm. and um, but if you look in in history in the 20th century you saw that there were a lot of cases where rich people were expropriated or uh, were even were killed. Remember, for example, uh, with what happened with uh, hundreds of thousands so-called kulaks—that means uh, wealthy peasants—in Russia that were killed only because they were rich. And the same happened in Cambodia with the uh, Khmer Rouge. Or the same happened in China in the Cultural Revolution. And there were a lot of examples in the 20th uh, century where rich people. Uh, were were victims. And this is what a lot of people uh, don't don't know uh, uh, today, because at school they hear a lot of things about the the evils of capitalism, but they don't hear much about these things, what what happened in history. And in the first step, it was always against rich people, but then it was against uh, 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 other people as well uh, as in, in Russia or in the in the Cultural Revolution mm. in, in China. And so, my book is a kind of, uh, of warning. Um, and and what, what I saw when I thought about prejudice and stereotypes against rich people, I looked in the scientific uh, literature whether, whether there is some research in it. But what was very interesting, we have thousands of books about stereotypes against uh, jewish people against black people against gay people against women even as we have scientific studies uh, in, in prejudice against poor people or overweight people but there was almost nothing about uh prejudice against rich people so this is uh, the the first uh a book now about this topic. and it, So it was published in Germany and now in the United States, in the UK it will be published in China and will be published in, in Italy because it's really the first book uh, for someone who's interested. And it was not only that we had this pulse. I told you about the numbers with this pulse. Don't be afraid. It's not a book uh, only with uh, with such figures and numbers, but uh, there's, for example, one, <laughs> one uh, chapter about An analysis of Hollywood movies, how rich people are portrayed in Hollywood movies. This was very interesting as well. We analyzed more than 500 Hollywood movies and there was an in-depth analysis of uh, 43 uh, uh, Hollywood movies. And uh, we analyzed how rich people were portrayed and they were portrayed uh, almost in, a, in most cases in a very negative way if you compare it how non-rich people are portrayed in uh, um, Hollywood movies. Mm. So
0: Rainer, looking at the body of work in, in your very impressive book, would you say that rich people have something to worry about when you look at the, the, the trends in terms of the attitudes towards them?
1: Yes, absolutely, and it, it don't has to be so extreme or bad as the examples that I mentioned in the 20th uh, century where rich people were killed. But even there, uh, other things can happen. Think about uh, Sweden in the 17th, for example. They had so such extreme uh, wealth tax. Some some cases, it was more than 100%. It was... Uh, uh, very, very bad, and there, uh, a lot of rich people had to leave uh, uh, Sweden in the 70s, like, for example, the founder of this furniture manufacturer, I- I- IKEA, uh, he he had to leave uh, uh, Sweden because of this uh, extreme high taxes. And But this harmed not only the rich people, but it harmed the society as a whole, because uh, this uh, socialist uh, policy that started with uh, extreme high taxes for wealthy people was a totally disaster for the whole, uh, for the whole society. And, um, but, but I think uh, rich people should learn from other minorities. Uh, look, for example, if you compare the situation of gay people, homosexual people 50 years ago and now. 50 years ago, there was very, very extreme uh, negative uh, attitude in a lot of uh, w- even Western countries. It was uh, uh, forbidden by, by the law, and there was a lot of discrimination. And to, today, the situation turned. For example, in uh, Berlin, we had a mayor who said uh, at a speech, "I'm proud to be gay"? For example, you, you mm. couldn't imagine something like this would happen uh, 50 years ago or even uh, 30 years ago. But um, but what could you learn from these other minorities? They 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 did something to to. Um, for example, there was a lot of scientific research about prejudice against these groups. But much more important in in uh, politics, they they engaged themselves for their own rights to, to 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 stand their crown. And this is what I miss with with rich people. In most cases, they are they are silent. They they are not able to explain people in the society why rich people are important and um i had another interview in, in, in germany it was uh, some month ago and uh, the um and i was asked the, the following questions uh, do you think uh we really need super rich people why do we need super rich people and uh i i answered with another question i i, I asked uh, him do you need do you think we need um successful entrepreneurs because this is the same we know this from academic wealth research that most people rich people became rich as entrepreneurs look at the forbes list of the richest uh, people uh, in the world. You see, number one, it's Jeff Bezos. Uh, with uh, He became rich with uh, uh, Amazon. Look at Bill Gates, who became uh, rich with Microsoft. Look at uh, Serge Brin or uh, Larry Page, uh, who became rich with uh, Google, or, or Mark Zuckerberg, who became rich with uh, Facebook, and, and, and. And um, this, uh, in, with this, these people from Forbes, they have every year this Forbes 400. These are the 400 richest uh, people in United States, and they analyzed uh, the the percentage of these 400 people that were self-made, self-made billionaires and compared it with those they called it uh, silver spoons or heirs. And what is interesting, and a lot of people don't know it. um, 1984, 48% of the richest Americans were self made 48% today, it's 67%. 67%. Most of them are self made. And um, if you attack rich people, it's nothing else that you attack successful entrepreneurs. And, and if someone asks me, why do we need rich people? I, I tell them, because we need people like Steve Jobs, we need people like uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, uh, or, or, or Bill Gates, they are important for our society. Yeah, and they're
0: certainly big job creators as well. Uh, uh, by the way, the one thing you would have noticed that those minority groups that you talked about, who have you know, straddled the great divide from being downtrodden to actually having quite a lot of power nowadays. They always had the media on their side championing their cause. I don't think the the media are very comfortable with the rich. Did your work look at the media and its attitude towards the rich?
1: Yes, absolutely. This uh, You know, this book is uh, like 550 pages and I think – more than 100 pages are about it's an uh, media analysis how uh, rich people are portrayed in newspapers or in tv or in the internet and i i mentioned before in hollywood movies as well and in most cases uh, um, the media have uh, much more negative picture of rich people than i think is uh, justified but i don't think that the media uh, th- th- is it's the only reason it is one reason but not the only reason because before i speak about the media i will tell you another very interesting result that we had uh, we had uh, in all countries the same question but there were one question uh, there was one question that we asked only in germany and italy and this a uh, little bit complicated to explain, but I think I can explain it. We we confronted people with a list of personality traits, for example, like intelligent or ruthless, greedy, uh, industrious, also some positive and some negative personality traits. And then we asked the people, what do you think? Uh, what uh, personality traits uh, f- um, were, were well, what are most likely that that rich people have these personality mm. traits, and the answers were in most cases negative, like uh, self-centered, uh, ruthless, materialistic, and and and. But then we did something very interesting. In the next step, we asked only those people who know, who knew at least one millionaire in person, and this was a minority, because most of the interviews, if we asked them, do you know uh, one or more uh, millionaires in, in, uh, in person, uh, they, they, they said no. But there was one subgroup who, who knew millionaire in person, then we asked them, what do you think about this millionaire, about his personality traits? And then it was exactly the other way around, the, the answers were He's intelligent, he's industrious, he is uh, 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 optimistic, he's visionary, and you, we, we know this as well with other minorities. If people don't have any contact with a minority group, in some cases they have a very uh, negative picture, but if they know them in person, then they have more different, differentiated uh, side of this uh, people. So. Uh, you spoke about the media, and it's true, the media, they they have an effect, and I think it is uh, mostly a, a negative effect, uh, but um, but this is not the only reason. I think uh, more important is, you know if there's a society that promises equality, that, that, that all people are equal, but in the end, we know... Uh, from the result, not not all people will be equal. There will be some people who are rich, some people who are poor and so on. And then, for sure, for the people who are not so successful, it is really frustrating. And then um, I developed something. I call it the compensation theory. What do I mean with this? Um, If uh, you see that there's someone better in some aspects of life, it's not only about wealth It can be uh, more intelligent, or or even more beautiful, or whatever. Then a lot of people uh, react in this way to maintain their self-conscious that they have no inferior uh, complex. Then they give this person more some negative points in other fields. For example, they say. I had this question. Okay, maybe he's uh, successful with money, but I'm sure on the other hand uh, he's he has a bad moral. For for uh, example, or for example, he's not honest uh, on on the other end. This is only not only true for rich people. Uh, we have similar prejudices, This is for example against pretty w- pretty women. Yeah, that people say, oh, she's so beautiful, but I think maybe she's not so uh, intelligent. Or, or it's sometimes the same for extreme intelligent people like prophets at the university where people say, oh, maybe, okay, you read a lot of books and he's very intelligent. But I'm sure on the other hand, in daily life, uh, I think he's... Uh, uh, he's not fit for, for uh, daily life or he's kind of nerd and so on. Mm. This is a st- structure of a, a prejudice against successful people in, in uh, general.
0: Yeah. Uh, Rainer, I could talk to you all day. Your book is fantastic. It actually does make people think about the nature of rich people and how we view them. And I think anyone who reads your book will get some fantastic insights. Randall Zittleman, uh, the author of the book, The Rich in Public Opinion. Thanks for joining us on The Peter Switzer Show.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me. I appreciate to speak with you again.
0: Yep, and that was Rainer Zittelman. Now, look, um, we always do a little bit of an ad now. Uh, we've noticed a lot of people have been taking up our free offer for a Switzer Report. Uh, that's where we get some of the best stock tipsters in the country to give their best views on what looks like really good value. If you're interested, there's a 21 uh, a free day trial. Uh, just go to switzerreport.com.au. I hope you you do that, try it, and I hope uh, you use the information there uh, to avoid being poor and to get rich instead, which I think is a better option. What's it like for a chemist in the era of the coronavirus? To find out, we have Pamela Bishop, the Chief Marketing Officer of Bloom's Chemist, and she joins me on the show. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Peter.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure. Before we start talking about the coronavirus and the life of a chemist business. How big is Blooms? Everywhere I go, I see Blooms.
2: Look, Blooms the Chemist, we've got over 100 pharmacies now across Australia under the brand Blooms the Chemist. So we're growing, uh, particularly in the last few years. So, yeah, definitely entering um, new states, which is really exciting. And,
0: and so um, is it difficult to to grow a chemist business. I always thought you had to have at least one chemist in a chemist shop. Is that still the rule?
2: Yes, yes. It is a regulated, quite a highly regulated industry. So you have to be a pharmacist to own a pharmacy in Australia. So Bloom's a chemist. We're we're a brand. We do have a support office that licenses our brand and offers a whole range of services um, from you know merchandising and marketing to payroll and lots of other services that right. um, pharmacists can take advantage of. So, pharmacists sign up to become part of the brand, but the individual pharmacies are absolutely owned by pharmacists.
0: I see, I see. So um, has the fraternity that you represent been very busy since the coronavirus?
2: Absolutely. This industry, you know, it is is on the um, front line of healthcare during the pandemic. So Mm -hmm. it has been very busy and there's been a, a number of challenges and particularly back when, I guess, in the early days here in Australia, back in March, which sort of feels like a lifetime ago now. Mm. It was extremely busy in March. Um, I think there was a lot of anxiety and concern out there in the public and people were concerned about um, being able to access medication. So for Bloom's The Chemist, our number one priority during the pandemic has been to ensure the safety of our people, which really is our staff and our customers. There is a risk of infection and there was a number of challenges with that, but we've mitigated those challenges with some conservative strategies, including we've split our rostering for pharmacy teams and we're offering home delivery for customers. And There has been a big focus on managing the supply of medicines during the surge in demand that we've seen and we've achieved that uh, with a management plan for product shortages and I guess by carefully monitoring the demand and supply during this period as well, because ensuring the continued supply of medicines is absolutely critical.
0: And so the level of sales, if you, if you could look at, say, the, the period from um, January, or even we, if we just take the, the June quarter, um, have, have the sales been much bigger than previous quarters?
2: Oh look I can I can talk to a foot traffic and um, perspective mm. so we do we do measure our foot traffic, which is essentially the number of customers that enter the door and we March was like a month we've never seen before. so we did have an, an extra million customers walking the door Gee. in the month of March. Mm. However, there was then a drop off um across April and May and I, I guess if you think back to March there was that sense of panic. We all heard on the news what was happening with the toilet paper situation and that, mm. you know medicines w- was quite critical because people need to take their heart medication and so on so we did a lot of work around communicating to our customers um that there was not a need to panic the the tga had come out and said there was absolutely enough medicine in australia to go around so we were really trying to ease customers concerns and we did put some limits on purchases in that time to try to prevent stockpiling to make sure there were no issues Um, and what we definitely saw then was you know probably a poorer economic outlook coming into April and people became a lot more conservative so that stockpiling was really only an issue for us in March.
0: Mm, I see
2: what what about
0: the demand for masks Uh, is that on the rise at the moment?
2: I think it's been it's been around for the last few months really and you know obviously every state is slightly different and we've got different rules in Victoria and we do have pharmacies in Victoria but yeah look masks are definitely one of those products that have been in high demand and you know, um, hand sanitizer and all those other um, preventative health products have certainly been the items that have been in high demand. Yeah,
0: is there a shortage of the, of supply for masks, or are we on top of that particular challenge now?
2: Well, as a business for Bloomsbury Chemists, we're on top of that. And yeah. um, there have been a number of challenges um, in in the supply chain and product demand, but we've manage them quite well we've got daily meetings with our key suppliers and our wholesaler to um, ensure that we are managing any potential product shortages and making sure that we'll have enough to go around so as a business we're in we're in a good place
0: if and when a vaccine shows up uh, uh, do you imagine that um, chemists will be recruited to actually supply the vaccine
2: Oh, look, it's such an unknown. It's something we haven't had in the past, so I really don't mm. know what that's going to look like. Um, at the moment, you know, we've got flu vaccines, but it's really nothing to compare it to COVID-19. So while pharmacies um, do supply flu vaccines, yeah, I, I'm really not sure what mm. what channel that will go through because so, it, it's cause,
0: available. Because, Pamela, uh, over the last 10 years or so, one of the innovations that chemists have, or pharmacists have brought to the to the Australian business scene is that they actually are doing a lot more than just selling drugs over the counter. They are actually performing services. I know of, you know, some pharmacists do um, sleep apnea tr- um, uh, assessments and um, they obviously many have nurses to, to do particular activities. I would imagine that the demand for vaccines are going to be so so great, particularly for those people who want to travel overseas, that, you know, pharmacists will be recruited to do this sort of thing
2: well yeah I mean if you look at it that way I'm sure It, it potentially we just don't know mm. unfortunately we don't know when a vaccine will be available and um, what channel it will be accessible through uh, if yeah absolutely For community pharmacy business is on the front line of healthcare, and you're right mm. we provide a number of health services it's not just about Dispensing um, prescriptions, there's a number of services available and, you know, that trusted professional health advice, of course, from, from the pharmacist. And um, absolutely, it is the first place a person will often go to for treatment when they are suffering from flu-like symptoms. So we have, uh, we do promote the flu vaccine as a preventative. Mm and to make sure that people are looking after their immunity as well. So that's, that's how we kind of operates in the space at the moment. But COVID-19 may be treated differently. I'm just not sure.
0: So, Pamela, there was always a big controversy about, you know, the supermarkets getting into, you know, the dispensing of um, chemist products. Where are we at with that battle? Oh,
2: look – I I don't know if there is a battle in terms of um, what the supermarkets are doing. They sell certain uh, medicines, which are not pharmacy medicines. Mm. Anything that is a pharmacy medicine um, or obviously a prescription, you've got to go to a pharmacy for. So I think they're two very different retailers, and two very different business concepts. Community pharmacy is all about um, being there to try and deliver the best health outcomes for Australians. And that's obviously what Blinds the Chemist are all about. We're there for the community and really just trying to do the best thing and protect, particularly at the, at the moment, the elderly and the vulnerable. And we're doing that through, you know, and um, tailored conversations between pharmacists and their customers, offering free home delivery and actually telling our customers to stay home and stay well. So it really is more of that focus on health. So I, I think they're quite different. Mm.
0: There was a time when, you know, supermarkets weren't able to sell any sort of pharmacy-style products but that has changed to a degree and, in a sense, made the, the pharmacy life a lot harder. And then you, you guys kind of responded by getting into a whole lot of services that you weren't in, into before. How, how would you assess the, the health of the pharmacy sector nowadays?
2: Look, it's a mature industry. It's been around for a very long time. Um, it is a regulated industry in Australia. I would say um, it's, it's health is probably a, a quite a funny word to use when we're talking about and um, the situation at the moment. But certainly, I can talk from a Blooms the Chemist perspective. Um, our business is sound. We are very focused on what our strategy is, which is um, offering those health services and trying to deliver, go above and beyond to deliver better health outcomes for Australia. There's a lot of change happening, and it's it's interesting what you say about the supermarkets and. I think in any sector, um, the market changes over time and that's certainly no different for the pharmacy sector. What we're seeing during COVID-19 is a real digital evolution. So we have we have a business have seen a rapid advance um, in that space within a number of weeks and our pharmacists have really embraced technology. E-health is, is the future, but really it's here now. Um, because of COVID-19, the whole process has sped up and new initiatives have rolled out. And I think in the current climate, It allows us to minimize physical contact and it makes it safer for the community and our people on the front line as well. So that's a big change
0: we've seen. And and Pamela, are you saying then that because of the threat of the coronavirus, the connection between customer and pharmacist has become more digital? I I presume you could use things like Skype and Zoom and all those sorts of things. So a, a patient or a customer could talk to a, a pharmacist from their home and then there's some sort of fulfilment or delivery service to bring the, the, the product to that p- uh, patient or customer at home?
2: Yeah, look, that, that's, I think it's an, just an evolution of what's available and it's giving the customer more options for how they actually want to interact with their pharmacist and how they want to receive their medicines So there have been a number of changes throughout COVID-19 and particularly around this e-health initiative that's been sped up and rolled out quicker. It was always on the cards, but it's happening a lot faster now. It has enabled easier access to medicines. It has enabled, like you said, video calls, either with your, your GP or your pharmacist, and you've got more options now. And I think it's a great thing, particularly for the elderly and the more vulnerable people in our community who we really do want to stay at home at the moment. So what we're seeing is a whole lot of collaboration between pharmacists and doctors so that they can have a prescription written and dispensed and then our pharmacists are actually delivering those prescriptions um, to their customers' homes.
0: And and, uh, are you seeing a a number of customers overstocking and therefore when the worst of this is over, you may well have a a sort of like a a come-down period?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's a bit hard to predict the trends and what's going to happen in the, the next few months. That was certainly a concern. Uh, like I said, back in March in particular, that was really the, the few weeks where we did see a big surge in demand. Um, it, was, it was driven a bit by panic buying and pantry, pantry stocking. Um, so our pharmacies were impacted by product shortages for those products that were in high demand. That then, of course, brought about significant challenges for the business. Uh, at that time, back in March, we had to be quite tactical We had a COVID-19 task force who were focused on just getting the business through each day, protecting the team and staying in stock. That was really the key focus. Um, That's evolved over time and the challenges around the supply chain have certainly eased. I think back then in March, I I really felt for our teams on the ground in the pharmacies because it did feel impossible at times for them to meet the demand of customers. Um, And there was a lot of anxiety and at sometimes even aggression from certain customers driven out of, you know, a place of fear and anxiety. And that, of course, has an emotional toll on, on everyone involved, the customer and the staff in the pharmacies as well. So it's hard to know what the future is going to look like. I think what doesn't help is um, COVID-19 is very much still here. So in terms of, you know, are we looking at weeks, months, we're not sure but what we have seen over the last few months is while there was that um, dramatic spike in demand in March, it has certainly sort of leveled out since then.
0: One last thing uh, I've noticed over the years when I've been invited to small business award nights that particularly from the, the local point of view, pharmacists always uh, seem to win. What's the secret that, that pharmacists have in being loved by their customers?
2: I think for um, our group, our our Blooms the Chemist brand, we are a true community pharmacy group. So what that means is um, each of our pharmacies are actually locally owned and operated. So we have a pharmacist who owns the pharmacy, who works in that store, and they typically live in that community as well. So Mm. their customers tend to be their their neighbours, you know, their kids go to school together. So they really are um, an integral part of that community we're really big on giving back to the community as well. So you'll find a lot of our Blooms of Chemist pharmacies will support their local sports teams or surf clubs or whatever it might be. And, you know, there's that real trusted point of contact um, for any health advice. And we've got pharmacies who've been uh, in that suburb for a very long time. Our business is 40 years old. And we have got pharmacies who, you know, existed long before that. This year, one of our pharmacies turns 100. So they really are a key part of that community. and. They know all of their customers by name. They know their kids' names. They know all of their medical history. So it's really it's really something special because they do have a true, meaningful relationship with their customers. And I think that's why um, pharmacists are held in such high regard.
0: Pamela Bishop, thanks for joining us on the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And that's Pamela Bishop from Blooms the Chemist. I just want to let you know about a new product that we've got here. It's called Tilly Money. Uh, It's been designed to help uh, women really get on top of their money um, and to be inspired by other women who are doing fantastic things out there. And uh, so I suggest you have a look at it. Just go to tillymoney.com.au and I think you'll find the information there will give uh, uh, you an enormous competitive advantage. And if you're a man listening to this and you have a woman you really, really care about, tell her about tillymoney.com.au. Well, joining me now is Andrew Crawley. He's Managing Director and Principal Advisor at Sugaro Risk Management. And it comes at a time when lots of Australian companies are being called zombie companies. And we're also hearing about zombie workers, which I presume are probably working in zombie companies. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you, Peter. So, Andrew, why don't you, before we kick off talking about zombies, which I think is a really interesting topic, what is Suguro Risk Management?
3: What do you actually do? So we're director advocates. So we advocate for directors that are get getting into a little bit of strife. These uh, small directors or small SME business directors, mm. they know their own trade very well and what they do. Uh, but sometimes they get they get a little bit, you know, with trade creditors, with um, statutory responsibilities, that type of thing. Uh, they can get into a little bit of trouble when the company can go a bit wayward. We work with them and we we.
0: Together we get out of it. Yeah. Now, I reckon to start a business like this, which kind of sounds unusual, you know, even though it's it might not be, but to the normal uh, punter in the street, they think it's an unusual thing. Is there a big demand and need for people who have companies, uh, SMEs that are companies? Do they get into a lot of trouble and do they need a lot of help?
3: Yeah, they, they do, but they don't know until they're, till they're in the trouble that they mm. need to help, and that's the issue. And in our case, it's very difficult for people to even know that we exist. Mm. Uh, the first port of call might be a solicitor. Um, it's always your accountant. Mm. Um, directors will always go to their accountant first. The accountant may not know or may not see something coming that we might see because we're specialists in the area of, well, we know what all the problems are, so we know when they're, they're arising, if you like.
0: Yeah, and do you get referrals from accountants who say, well, that's not really my expertise. I know my clients in a bit of uh, bit of trouble here, but I need someone who can navigate him out
3: of it. We do. We get referrals from accountants and solicitors, mm. and uh, the, uh, there's still a lot of accountants uh, that will send somebody straight to a liquidator when they get into trouble, and yeah. it's not because there's anything wrong with the accountant. Yeah. It's because the accountant looks at a situation and says, the company's insolvent, I know some liquidators, I'll send you there. Yeah. And we're trying to avoid that step because it's, there's no coming back from it. So,
0: so what you're saying then is if ever you're, if you're in business and your accountant says, well, we might have calling the liquidator, you might say, well, is there another step we can take before we go to that drastic step? And you, you would be the sort of person they would go to.
3: Yeah, that's correct, and invariably there is another step, mm-hmm. and there are, there are lots of other steps that wouldn't have been tried, mm-hmm. and um, it's it's not because we're better or smarter than anybody else. It's just that this is all we do. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: yeah. And that helps. So, talk, tell us about the, the, the idea of a zombie company. You know, I've been doing business a long time, and we never, ever talked about zombie companies. Is this something that's been
3: created by the pandemic? look. So the the a zombie company is simply what it is—a Walking Dead. So a zombie company is a company that sooner or later is going to go is going to go under. It's probably insolvent, and it's just a matter of time. But that's not why it's so prevalent now. The reason it's prevalent now is because of the COVID changes. Yeah. So to give you an idea, over this period of COVID, whether it be three or four months, this same time last year, say there was a thousand liquidations uh, a month. Just say there were, and mm. that's probably pretty close to the mark. Yeah. You would have expected in this difficult period now for those liquidations to increase, but the reality of it is they've decreased by 40%. Mm. So whereas there was a thousand this time last in this month last year, there'll be 600 this year. Now, what the what the prevalence is that they're saying those other 400 only exist because of the changes that's been made by the government and treasury in the COVID period, and therefore it's most likely that they'll go under at the end of it. I don't necessarily agree with that, mm. but that's what the logic is.
0: Yeah, and I guess it makes sense that if the average is about a 1000 and it's dropped to 600, you know, the government assistance must be a p- part of the explanation.
3: Look, it absolutely is, and it also helps the government in well, in my opinion, it helps the government in distributing the job keeper. So if these companies were to shut their doors and these these people would go from job keeper to job they're the, the looking for the job. Mm. And um so the the companies, uh, the government needs the companies there to distribute the uh, the income. But um, look, uh, there's other issues here too, which is the government in this period have pretty much stopped anybody enforcing a recovery. Mm. So whereas previously, prior to COVID, if you issued a statutory demand or a bankruptcy notice or something of that nature, you could start wind up proceedings on a company or an individual within 21 days. Now it's six months. Yeah. Within this period, so they pretty much stopped the re- the, the ability mm. to enforce a debt.
0: Well, Andrew, you did tr- have a quick throwaway line where you you kind of implied that some of these companies, you know, if we use the numbers, a thousand used to go into liquidation, now it's six hundred. So there's possibly four hundred zombies out there. You kind of implied that some of the, some of them actually might avoid the zombie status forever. Is that? Is that because they've been given a bit of a breathing space and they might be able to sort out their difficulties when normalcy returns?
3: I think it's the manner – in my opinion is the manner they're going to be able to sort out those difficulties will change. Mm. The government won't want those companies going broke, neither will the ATO, and uh, their creditors will also be in a bad position as well. Mm. So whereas going into COVID, a normal action would have been that if, if you've if you've got a you know a company that's not paying your bills and you take an enforcement against them, you wind up the company. Yeah. That's what you do.
0: Most recessions are like that, aren't they, really? There's no, there's no big concessions in most recessions.
3: Yeah, that's right. But when we come out of COVID, if we come out of COVID or in what state we come out of COVID, then everybody's going to be in the same situation. And your creditors, if you trade creditors, will have a different attitude perhaps, whereas if their scenario is very simply, well, you have to go under or I can take a reduced settlement over a period of time, uh, they, they'd be a little more open to taking on the reduced settlement. I also believe that the government will make a lot of variations or the Treasury may make variations um, that will enable these companies or these businesses to go forward, even if they have to leave the company behind. So I'm actually a little optimistic about what may occur Mm. once we come out of this period.
0: Obviously, you've looked at lots of businesses that were expected to go under and some of them didn't um, because of your intercession or the knowledge that you have. What are the standout characteristics of a business, um, where the, the business is actually doomed? You know, you you, you see the the signs, uh, and the signs are terminal. What are those standout signs?
3: So what they'll what people will refer to mainly is when a company's insolvent, they're going to say it's when you can't pay your bills as and when they're called upon. Hmm. That's what they'll say. Yeah. Now that's so broad, it's not funny because that means that if somebody calls on a bill and you talk them out of it and give you another 30 days, you're no longer insolvent.
0: Yeah, right.
3: Okay, by, by the definition or, mm. or, or or by that. Look, the, the situation is that you can start telling, when you go into taxation arrangements, everybody, I shouldn't say this, but the majority of business owners don't prioritise paying their tax. Yeah. So when they start to get behind in their tax and they start going into tax arrangements, I believe that's the point in time you need to speak to somebody like us. Yeah, Because that's when you need to have a look at the way your business is, is working, mm. and if it's not working so that it can pay your taxation on time, realistically there's something wrong within the business. Yeah, and the other issue is, I'm sorry, Peter. The other issue is when you get a statutory demand. Yeah. So if you've let trade trade debts go to such an extent that somebody's taken a judgment against you and now they're moving to wind up your company, mm. well, you've really got to start looking at how we go from there.
0: So it seems to me the bottom line lesson is. If for any reason, even if it was, even an understandable reason, in a pretty good business that you have to go into a tax arrangement with the ATO, you should bring an independent set of eyes into your business to see if there's a lot of sort of silly processes that need to be changed.
3: Absolutely, and look, and the accountant's fantastic because he's organised a, a, a payment arrangement with the ATO, yeah. whereas the company can move forward. But it's what's it, what else has been changed? Yeah. All that that means is, well, you weren't paying your tax before. Now, not only are you paying your tax back, albeit over a period, part of that condition will also be that you pay your current tax up to date. Mm. So you're going from a, a company structure that was not paying its tax, if you like, and I don't mean that in a bad sense, it just, you know, let it yeah. go by the wayside a little bit, uh, to all of a sudden, not only you, not only are you paying your tax and keeping it up to date, you're also paying the arrears. And, you know, unless you've got a massive net profit, which these companies don't have, it's going to be very difficult to catch up unless you start changing things.
0: Yeah, great stuff, Andrew Crowley from uh, Seguro Risk Management. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you very much, Peter. And that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Next week we'll be looking at superannuation. How can you find the very best and the very cheapest in the country? Britain time. Britain time. <laughs>